0: turn their retirement goals into reality, and improve their lives. And now, here's your host, Ross Brannan.
1: Welcome to the show. My guest today is Dr. Bill Dishinger. Bill is an orthodontist operating out of Lake Oswego, Oregon, and he's been working in orthodontics since 1999. His clinic, Dish Smiles, offers a number of different treatments to patients of all ages. Bill, thanks for coming on the show. And my pleasure. Thanks
2: for having me. So, tell me a little bit how you got into orthodontics. Well, like a lot of people in dentistry, my dad was an orthodontist. Second career for him, he was actually an NBA basketball player uh, for 11 years. And All right, stop,
1: then. stop. Talk. Whoa. Yeah, I'm a sports guy. Tell me about NBA basketball.
2: All right. Well, he was not just an NBA basketball player, he, uh, he was rookie of the year in 63, uh, won a gold medal in 1960. He was on the team with Oscar Robertson, Jerry Westry, Lucas, those guys. Other teams in the hall of fame. So he was, uh, yeah, he was something else. He, what was, he was his name? What's his name? Terry Dishinger. And so, what team did he play for? So his rookie year was the Chicago Zephyrs who then moved to Baltimore and became the bullets, which is now the Washington wizards. Uh, played there for three or four years and went to Detroit, played for the Pistons. And then his last year finished up in Portland and that's how I wound up in Portland, Oregon. So awesome.
1: So yeah, so you're the son of an orthodontist kid.
2: Yep. And um, never thought I want to do that. I mean, stick your hands in people's mouths. That's disgusting. Who, who would have ever wanted to do that growing up. But then my freshman year after my freshman year in college, he had someone quit in his lab needed someone to fill in last second. He's, that was my summer job. He kind of said this is what you're doing for the summer. And working there, I realized it wasn't just sticking your hands in people's mouths. It was actually owning a small business, which I was a business major at the time. And that really appealed to me. So being able to own a small business, uh, working with people, I enjoy the interaction of people. So it it actually was a really good fit. So I switched majors and the rest is history.
1: What's one of the best benefits of owning a dental practice or an orthodontic practice is it is a business. You can do so much with it. Now, You have been recognized as an expert in your field and you you give lectures all over the world. Tell us a little bit about that, how it evolved, where you've been, what you do, all that.
2: Yeah, so my dad had developed a technique for correcting a certain type of bad bite. And so he had kind of pioneered that. And so he actually would run courses out of his office. People would come in and they would learn how to do it. He occasionally would get asked to give some courses elsewhere. And so I kind of, again, fell into it a little bit because of him, but then I worked with a company on developing some new techniques and, and processes and kind of help pioneer some new stuff. And I love that. I love trying new things. I get bored just doing the same thing over and over again. So it's kind of a perfect fit for me and some of these companies to, hey, we have this new technique, which you be willing to trial it out. And and see if it works and, and, and help us improve on it. So that's how I got into it was, was through these companies asking me to do things like that. And then just kind of found that I enjoyed teaching and some people apparently think I'm decent at it and have been asked to do it all over the world. And I love doing it. It it makes me a better orthodontist. Hopefully it helps other people become better, better orthodontists. And it's a great thing to kind of break up what I do on a daily basis. So, where have you traveled uh, to give lectures? Southeast Asia, all over the place, all over Europe, the Middle East. Oh, wow! So this America. this is not just yeah. like LA, Chicago, Atlanta, New York. <laughs> no, no, no. It's uh, it's been great. I uh, I've gotten to see the world. It's been a wonderful thing that I've gotten to do.
1: Yeah. Is there and, a? I was gonna say, is there a favorite place? Favorite place you've been?
2: Uh, I would say Asia. The orthodontists in Asia. First of all, they they treat some of the hardest cases in the world but just their appetite to learn and their appetite to, and their desire and their drive to become the best that they can be is really inspiring. And to see just how enthusiastic they are about getting better at their craft is really inspiring to me. So that's, I love teaching in Asia for that reason.
1: Is there a specific part of Asia that you
2: like going to? Southeast Asia is great. I've been to Thailand, uh, China quite a bit. Indonesia, Singapore, Malaysia, all those places. So, And it's funny because as Americans, we think of Southeast Asia as just Southeast Asia, but we think of Europe as all these little unique countries and cultures. And Southeast Asia is all these unique countries and cultures. And it's amazing to, to go in each country and see what their customs and their cultures are and then just the different ways that they act. And, and of course the food's incredible. So yeah, so I don't know if I would say I have a favorite country within Southeast Asia because they're all so unique and different and fun, but that's probably my favorite place in the world to travel and to teach. Why do they have some of the toughest cases in the world? So I don't know what is going on with hereditary and genes. Um That's a little beyond my pay grade, but typically the people from Southeast Asia have a lot more crowding as far as just not enough room for their teeth. Uh, And they have a jaw structure that lots of times the lower jaw will outgrow the upper jaw, which is one of the hardest things for us orthodontists to correct. Um, More in Western culture, the lower jaw tends to undergrow compared to the upper. And there's a lot of different ways to correct that that are pretty easy. So it's mostly that discrepancy between the upper and lower jaws. That's it's kind of a hard thing to correct.
1: Here's an interesting question for you. I read a book about six months ago called breath it's a yellow book and the author basically said that westerners especially are big mouth breathers versus nasal breathers and he said mouth breathing actually causes crowding in the mouth versus if you breathe nasally uh, through your nose more it reduces crowding in your mouth and he talked about you know ancient cultures have all been nasal breathers but the Western world is very much mouth breather heavy. As an orthodontist, when you hear that, I don't know, is that complete malarkey or is there a truth in that from your perspective?
2: In my perspective, it's absolutely true. You look at the epidemic of sleep apnea within our culture, and the sleep apnea is directly related to exactly what that book was talking about. Um, it's a tongue position thing. It's because of where we position our tongue. And it starts when these kids are infants, A lot of it's from bottle feeding. Um, The pacifiers aren't great. And a lot of it's from our diet too. Our diet's different than what it used to be. And so these kids wind up not positioning their tongue up in the roof of their mouth like they're supposed to. The jaws don't form normally. Tongue gets in the way of the airway, so they can't breathe through their nose. So, yeah.
1: That's absolutely fascinating because I know there's a lot of sleep stuff in the general dentist world, a lot of sleep kind of treatment. And so I was like, okay, is this, you know... Is this guy out there or is this legitimate or not? But what I have found is um, that focusing on breathing through my nose myself has helped me a lot. And and the book's Breath, The New Science of a Lost Art by James Nestor, Um, if anyone's listening and they want to read it. So that's really fascinating to hear you say that. So you're pretty cutting edge, you talk about, in new techniques from a technology standpoint. And this is a question I've actually never been able to ask an orthodontist, or maybe I never not have the guts to ask an orthodontist. Um, so it's a two-part question. So from a technology standpoint, I would imagine that you're fairly cutting edge, always kind of going after new technology. That's part one. Is, is, that, is that fair?
2: Yeah. Yep, definitely.
1: So what are you seeing out there that is... New that is going to become more
2: mainstream as things go on? I would say there's kind of two parts to that. So I'll give you a two part answer to a two part question. One is the improvements of clear liners. So, like Invisalign's, you know, kind of opened up the whole industry 23 years ago. And about five, six years ago, their patents started running out, and other companies were able to start getting into this and and also manufacture clear liners. It's like any industry, once you get more companies involved in it, you get innovation improvements, technology advances, and just, you know, competitiveness improves things. So the technology of clear liners has gotten a lot better. So it used to be, if you use clear liners instead of braces, you usually had a little bit of a compromise of your result. That's no longer the, the case anymore. You can pretty much treat anything with clear liners now. Now, taking that a step further, one of the things that pushed our industry during the pandemic to get better at was virtual virtual visits. And, you know, we saw that in, in medicine and it's just, you know, virtual medicine or telemedicine or whatever you wanna call it is, you know, it's such a buzz thing now. In orthodontics, we've always had to have patients in our office to change their wires or put their braces on or do whatever. And I've always said, I have to be in my office to make money. Now with using clear liners, we can see these patients virtually And the technology is unbelievable. So there's a company called Dental Monitoring where they use a person's iPhone and the person takes these pictures within their mouth. There's this special app they hook it up to and stretches the, the lips and cheeks out. And then there's artificial intelligence that reads these pictures to figure out, are the teeth moving the way they're supposed to? At a certain stage, they're supposed to be at this certain point. And the artificial intelligence can figure that out. And then if things aren't quite going right, then it'll alert us that, hey, we picked up on something not quite right. You need to check on this. And then we will then go online and look at it. And then we can message with the patient. So for me, a patient that I used to see 15 times in my practice, I can now treat them with clear liners and I can see them three or four times in my office. So what that's doing is it's allowing us to be much more efficient within our practice. That's You can tell I'm kind of passionate about this. It's kind of my, this is my new baby here. So it would mean that
1: clear liners are more profitable than braces in that respect.
2: Absolutely. Now there's a tipping point. So if you are just kind of dabbling in clear liners and doing this virtual monitoring, but a majority of your patients, you're still treating in braces, you're still having to be in your office all the time because you have all these braces patients you're having to take care of. So you have to get over a certain percentage and I would say that's probably 65 to 70% of your patients you need to be treating with clear aligners to then be able to reduce either your staff or the number of days you're in the office or or both to start making this pay for itself and then eventually being more profitable. But, but yeah, if you do it, if you do it the right way and you and you commit to to absolutely going all in, then yeah, you're going to be much more profitable in the long run.
1: So I, I have five kids. My oldest is 14. She's already had braces. And I'll tell you right now, unfortunately uh, for me, but fortunately for my kids, dentist, they all look like they're going to need uh, braces. They all look very British in their mouth, shall we yeah. say. Oh, i um, sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but like they said, my daughter was like, she wanted Invisalign. And I was like, okay, we're talking with the dentist about it. And I was like, I'm like, no, I'm not letting you get Invisalign because that is that requires you to do something. And she was like 11 or 12 at the time. And it's like, I don't want to pay. I don't want to deal with this for three or four years because you're not doing what you want and you're not doing how you're supposed to. Um, And my 12 year old, he's coming up next and he's trying to uh, lobby for Invisalign. I'm like, I don't know that I think you're responsible enough to do that. Uh, You know, as an adult, I would, but in your experience, is there an age where Invisalign makes sense? And is there an age where,
2: you know, there probably need to be in braces? Our adults are much worse than our kids, actually. Wow. So, yeah. I mean, think about our kids' lives and our lives. Our kids, they're, they're scheduled. They got this regimen every single day. So they have the parents monitoring them. They got teachers monitoring them, coaches, whatever. So adding one more thing onto their schedule super easy for them it just it, it blends right into their their scheduled life already um, and then with this monitoring that i was talking about every single week where we're monitoring them there's this uh, my mind's blanking on the word but basically we're we're checking in on them and, and so they have to be doing what they're supposed to be doing or they're getting caught with adults i don't know about your life you got five kids so i know what your life is like because i got four kids every day is is a freak show you know it's just like you're, you're just trying to get through each day Every day is different. You're running, you know, flying by the seat of your pants. And so with adults, we tend to lose track of, of these things. Plus, as we get older, we just can't multitask anyways, because we're just, you know, our brains are soggy. So I find that our kids actually do really, really well. Our adults to be a little bit worse on it, just because it's it's harder for them to keep track of all of it.
1: Okay. So here's the part two of my question. Smile Direct Club. Do you find that as competition or do you find that as almost an advocate for you where they actually need a professional to come in and help them? Uh, because it's, to me, it, it's like, okay, they took the Invisalign concept and said, let's just let's eliminate the quote-unquote middleman and go mm-hmm. direct with the, the patient. What's your perspective on that? What have you seen?
2: Yeah, I think right now where they're at, they're not really competition to us. Like you said, they raise awareness of crooked teeth. And that's one of the great things Invisalign has done over the years is They raised awareness of crooked teeth and more people are seeking orthodontic treatment now than than ever before. Smile Direct Club right now is kind of doing that. Their capacity to treat cases is is pretty limited on what they can be successful at. It's getting better and they have tons of of money behind them. So they're going to continue to get better. Eventually, they will be competition to us, but right now they're they're not to that point point. Uh, just because they're treating more of the limited cases, probably people that, that wouldn't come see an orthodontist anyways. Now, the way that in the orthodontic industry, in the dentist, dental industry, whatever you want to call it, that we can combat against a company like a Smile Direct Club is by making aligners in-house. So by using 3D printing technology with our scanners, and we actually, instead of using a third party to make these aligners, like Payne Invisalign to make them, we make them in-house for these more limited cases And then we can price it to the level that Smile Direct Club is pricing, but yet you're getting overseen by a doctor. So we can kind of give them the the best of both worlds. So that's another technology thing that we're doing in our office. We're doing in-house aligners as well for those more limited cases to be that answer to Smile Direct Club and trying to get out ahead of it.
1: Well, I like the fact that you're kind of being proactive here and you're not just playing playing defense you're playing offense too that's that's pretty interesting right there so let's let's kind of change gears a little bit on the subject here you've been in practice since 1999 so you've seen a lot of things come and go um so let's talk about the uh private equity dso oso world and what it's going on what is your take on everything that's happening in the industry from that perspective
2: yeah i mean it's definitely it's growing growing momentum for sure um in the past, if you sold to a OSO, you typically got a lot more upfront than you would if you sold to a you know a, a private doctor coming in that's going to take over your practice. That's starting to change a little bit as there's more companies out there and, and as they're growing, they're not having to pay as much over basically value as they used to. So it's not as quite as good a deal as it used to be for the selling doctor, but it's still pretty good in getting your money up front as opposed to getting paid over a few years by a new doctor coming in is, is attractive. I do think it has a place in our industry. I'm not an anti-corporate dental person. I think it has a good place and and it can service patients very, very well. The worry that I have long-term is right now they're allowing doctors to still be autonomous, to, to still run their practices the way they want to, to use the treatment techniques and buy the appliances that they, that they prefer. Eventually, though, all these, these corporations, their end goal is not to just continue to own all these practices. They want to sell off to venture capitalists and, and cash out and make a gazillion dollars. And they all admit that, and which is fine. If you can go make money, go make money. You know, it's just like pro athletes. Why should they people get mad at them when they sign these huge contracts? It's, we all want to make as much money as we can. So that's that's totally fine. But when that happens, my worry is that the, uh, the autonomy that, that doctors are being allowed to have right now will go away because then it only turns into a numbers game. And all it is is about the, the maximum profit. And if we're only about profit, we're not about quality any longer. We're not about allowing you to do what you wanna do and it becomes a problem. So I think we've seen that happen with pharmacy. We've seen it you know, happen quite a bit in medicine. And if we allow it to happen in dentistry and orthodontics, we'll be going down the same path. So that's my long-term worry. That's So personally, I'm trying to protect against that and not be a part of it. Um, Again, not that I'm anti, but long-term, I think the best thing for us doctors and for our patients is to, to be privately owned as we currently are. Well, I have two questions on that. Number one, give the example of pharmacists that you gave
1: when we were talking offline.
2: Yeah, so when I was in dental school, I started dental school in 1993. And I remember in our first class was pharmacology. And they showed us these these surveys of the number one respected profession in America. And the number one respected profession in America was a pharmacist. And if you think back to when we were kids, we all knew our local pharmacist, He, he or she had, you know, this little, you know, mom and pop shop, lots of them had like a little counter that you could order food. You had gift cards and and they worked, you know, 10 to five or nine to five or what, you know, they worked great hours and they didn't work. It was always closed on the weekends. You had to get there before Friday at five. Private business owners. So it was a great profession. That's gone now. Pretty much every pharmacist in America works for CVS, Safeway, you know, Rite Aid, whatever. They work weekends. They work nights. They're, they're working all the time. They're making, you know, a low percentage financially of what they used to. Uh, they're overworked, underpaid. And to think in any industry, to think that that can't happen to them, that's arrogance. It can happen to any industry if you allow it to. And, and so that, that example to me should be a warning sign that, okay, you've got to be careful. If you're chasing this dollar now, where's that profession going to be down the road? And, you know, you were talking about a friend that you had or a colleague that you had that truly believes in paying it forward for that next generation of doctors. And yeah, maybe could I sell my practice for more money right now? Yeah, but what's that gonna leave for that next doctor coming along? And we had doctors ahead of us that paved the way and and left a great profession for us. Wouldn't it be great if we could do that, that same thing for the generation behind us?
1: It would be interesting to see what the inflation adjusted income of a pharmacist in 1990 is versus a pharmacist in 2021.
2: I think it'd be and, scary. It's not like they don't go to a lot of school to be there already, too. I mean, they're coming right, out mean, a lot of debt.
1: Because you have to obviously make sure you're putting the right drugs there. And I know what type of income they make today. It's nothing that would uh, excite you for a lot of people. So one thing I've seen is you've seen groups of dentists. And uh, and I had of a, a client who this happened to in the last year. It was basically a DSO of a bunch of orthodontists. They kind of started their own OSO, I guess we would say, and they're buying up practices. And it's kind of like, all right, we see what you're doing, private act. We're going to go do it ourselves, trying to trying to kind of compete or counteract that, or trying to, you know, do whatever. What's your take on that model? Do you think that is a a viable model, a competitive model? What's your perspective?
2: I think that is absolutely the model that we have to pursue. So that's what I have a new associate that works for me. We are partnering up with another practice. We are already in the process of purchasing a, a, another practice on top of that. And that's our plan, absolutely, is to basically set up that fence, that barrier around us where we have multiple locations that are run by just a, a couple doctors. Because getting back to that efficiency that I was talking about before with the technology we have, we can run six seven eight locations with just two or three doctors now and we can basically be our own corporation and what it does is it gives us options down the road if this is where our profession is going to ultimately go and we have no choice we have this big kind of valuable asset then that that we can sell if we have to that's not our goal that's not what we want to do we want to set it up to stay private and to let the next generations then continue that but yeah, absolutely. Like you were saying, I think that that's if you want to survive, not just survive, but survive successfully, I think that's what you have to do.
1: Because of all that's going on, do you see it being a, a challenging industry for a fresh new dental school, orthodontic school or specialist school graduate?
2: I would say um, it's more challenging than what I had 20 plus years ago. But to say that it's challenging compared to what a lot of professions have out there, I, I think is um, I think is probably overstating it. It's it's still it's still one of the top professions in the country. I mean, for what we do and what we get paid is is pretty remarkable. Now, the cost of the education today for these, and you know, kids is the wrong word, but they seem like kids to me, is exorbitant. And that's a whole nother discussion as far as just cost of education in, in America today is disgusting but I teach at University of Pacific in San Francisco. And these graduating residents are coming out with over half a million dollars of education debt. And that's that's insane. So you think about, and that's why these corporations are doing so well, because these residents come out, they have, you know, half a million dollars of student loan debt. They are looking to buy a home. They have to try to buy a practice. I mean, just financially, they can't do it or they can't they can't qualify for all these loans to make it happen. So that's why the corporations are, are doing better. So it's cost of education is, is kind of setting some of this up. So sorry, that was a long, a long answer for, yeah, it's more challenging than what I had, but it's the opportunities right. are still phenomenal.
1: So let's kind of change gears here for a second. You've been doing this for almost 23 years. Your father was an orthodontist. Your son may even want to be an orthodontist. Talk about some of the lessons you've learned, some of the things that, you know, if I I wish I would have known this when I was, you know, 28 years old or 30 years old, what have been some of the biggest lessons that you've learned, whether it's actually like clinically or whether it's like owning a business or financially or any of that? that?
2: Yeah. I mean, you know, you're always learning. And as far as clinically, you know, you look back on what you did 10 years ago and you just kind of shake your head and like, wow, I thought that was great great treatment back then. And that would be considered terrible. Now what we're putting patients through. So that's, that's always going to be that way, you know, as, as technology continually improves for what we do for treatment. So, so I can't, I don't really look at those and, and, and get too upset by that because it is what it is financially. Yeah. I mean, everybody's always, Oh man, if I had done this, done that. So I try not to do that too much. The one thing that, that I do know is true is we always spend more than we should earlier in our careers. You know, you, we were talking about how long it takes to become an orthodontist. It's an additional six to seven years after college. So you're, you're behind all your friends, all your college friends or your high school friends. You're behind starting life, basically. And you try to catch up pretty quick. And you, you spend more than you should in those first few years of, of your career. And if I could, that's the one thing, if I can go back and, and live a little more lean at the start and build up that nest egg earlier on, because the comp, you know compound interest going forward with your retirement funds and just everything, that would be the biggest change that I would do for sure. You know, and then just as you manage people, you know you're a boss of of a, of a team that you work with, and you just over the years, you hopefully get better at managing people and understanding people and relating to them. I think that's the the biggest challenge as being a business owner is the management of people and learning how to do that you make a lot of mistakes along the way and, you know, you sometimes lose good people because you were a bad, a bad leader. Well, so yeah.
1: that That's the challenge is you learn all this clinical stuff in school. You learn nothing about finance yeah. and you learn nothing about managing people. And, and I know dentists who are trying to sell a practice because they hate managing people. Mm-hmm. And um, it really is. It's fascinating. I, I've said this numerous times on, on the podcast is I know dentists who earn a good living, but they really just own a job. And But when you can transition from owning a job to owning a business, being a business owner who happens to be a dentist or a business owner who happens to be an orthodontist or whatever, that's when the wealth really starts coming in and, and people really start earning uh, just incredible incomes. And and to your earlier point is, you know, I try to live all the whole time, the rate of savings is the most important indicator of financial success. Mm -hmm. Warren Buffett says the habit of thrift, i.e. savings, is the most important habit to accrue. So as we wrap up here, I have a couple last questions for you. What advice would you give a new dental school graduate?
2: Find a good mentor. That's number one. Uh, Find a good mentor that's been there, done that, that's been successful. Not just successful financially, but successful as far as their quality of life and happiness of life because there's a lot of well there's a lot of people just period but a lot of dentists that are very financially successful but are not life successful and there's a balance that you have to find with that so find a mentor that that you can even if it's not someone that you are working with but maybe you can at least pick their brain and, and have lunch with them periodically and get together with them and have them teach you that life balance that that allows you to be successful both with your practice with management of your team and then financially, and then with your life. So that would be my number one thing is to, is to seek those people out. And I'm not saying it's easy to find those people, but just get out and, and meet with Dennis in the community and you'll, you'll quickly find who's authentic and who's not. So that would be number one, as we said, save, save, save. And you know, you should be living off 50% of what your gross income is. And and when I say that, you know, you're know you paying your taxes, you got your retirement, you got money that you're putting off into investments inside, and only 50% of what you gross make should you actually be spending. And if you can do that, you're, you're gonna be set up successfully for the rest of your life financially.
1: Which means if you live where I live in Florida, you pay less in taxes.
2: Yeah, yeah it's hard to do that in Oregon where I live. I mean, <laughs> that, that, 50%, that 50% goes like that.
3: So, yeah.
1: yeah. All right. Last question here. I would assume that you're a reader being that you're as all the studying you do. Um, what's the best book you've read recently?
2: Oh boy. That's a good question. Um, I have to admit, I'm, I'm not a great reader. I'm better at listening to podcasts. Usually by the time I'm crawling in the bed, if I, if I'm pulling up a book, I got five minutes before I'm asleep. Right. So. so what's, what's a podcast you're listening to? <sighs> well, Podcasts could be you
1: could be like me. I have 40 I'm subscribed to.
2: I listen to like yeah. three. <laughs> well, um I'm a bit of an escapist, so I tend to listen to podcasts that are more more fun as opposed to educational. That's so,
1: okay. That's
2: okay. Yeah, yeah. So you know, you being from Florida, you'll probably laugh at this, but I'm a total Disney geek nerd. So I listen to stuff about about the, the Disney company and then I'm a sports junkie, so it's usually sports. You know, you're going to have to cut that question and answer from this uh, from this interview because it's such a disappointment. Like, okay, what is wrong with this guy?
1: Well, before I let you go, so what was, did you play basketball? What was your basketball career
2: like? I played basketball, you know, growing up, I, th- I thought I was supposed to be a basketball player. Right. And, you um, know, I was decent. I, I played, I walked on at Oregon State University and played one year down there and Quickly learned that uh, I was either too short or too slow, probably both, to make it at the uh, Pac-12 level. We were Pac-10 back then. How, but, uh, how, how tall is your dad? My dad, he was six seven. He's quite a bit shorter now as he's gotten old, uh, but he was six seven and uh, and he was very quick too. So he was he was amazing. He was a first team All State in high school in four sports, not just three and four: football, basketball, baseball, and high hurdles. So he was a freak. And how tall uh, are you? I'm six two and shrinking. So uh, yeah. I, I'm six eight. You're six eight? I'm six eight.
1: So yes. I actually I actually played college football at Florida State back in the nineties when we were good. But wow, that's another topic for another day. Yeah. So uh,
2: were you tied in or what were you? I was offensive tackle. Offensive. okay. All right. So yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: So yeah. Were you
2: there when primetime was there?
1: No, he was late eighties. I okay. was late nineties. We won a national title yeah. when I was there. So it was a lot of fun, but uh, yeah, it's a lot of fun. So
2: well, I've, I've heard that Bobby Bowden
1: was an amazing man. I, every good thing you heard about him is true. Yeah. So, well, Bill, it's been a pleasure uh, talking to you today. It's been a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for coming on.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure.
1: All right, everyone. You've been listening to Financial Flossing Podcast with Ross Brandon. We'll see you next week.
0: This has been another episode of Financial Flossing with Ross Brannan, guiding dental professionals to a brighter future. If you liked what you heard, consider subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts. For more on Ross Brannan, visit
3: rossbrannan.com. Registered representative and financial advisor of Park Avenue Securities, LLC, PAS, OSJ, 3664 Coolidge Court, Expiration, April 2023. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Guest speakers and their firms are not affiliated with or endorsed by PAS,
2: Guardian, or North Florida Financial, and opinions stated are their own. Ross is a registered representative and financial advisor of Park Avenue Securities, LLC, PAS, OSJ, 3664, Coolidge Court, Tallahassee, Florida, 32311, 850-562-9075. Securities, products, and advisory services offered through PAS member FINRA, SIPC. Financial representative of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, Guardian, New York, New York. PAS is a wholly owned subsidiary of Guardian. North Florida Financial is not affiliated with or subsidiary of PAS or Guardian. Arkansas Insurance License, number 16139032. California Insurance License, number 0L10073. 2021 Expiration 1223.